chapter 6. I've asked my friend Joe Obaha to do our scripture reading this morning. Joe, if you could go ahead and come this way. One of our newest dads in the congregation, Deuteronomy chapter number 6. He'll be doing our scripture reading this morning. Our scripture reading is um, taken from Deuteronomy um, chapter 6, reading verses 4 to 7. Verse 3, uh, verse 4, sorry. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, is one Lord, and thou shalt love thy, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. Verse 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sitst in thy house, and when thou walks by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. This is the word of God. Trust you have your Bibles this morning. We'll be in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And if you'd like to drop a piece of paper into 1 Samuel, chapter 1, we'll also spend some time there. So Deuteronomy, chapter 6, we'll be taking our text from Deuteronomy 6. If you, have a, if you are a parent this morning, God has entrusted to your hands a precious gift. Your child will be like no other. Of course, they have different fingerprints, but they also have different personalities. If you have multiple children, you know that that's the case. One might be outgoing and another one reserved. Another one might be very funny and another one might not. And yet God has given each child his own characteristics and then entrusted that child to your care to raise up in Ephesians 6-4's words, to the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I don't want to scare you with this statement, but I do hope that it will help you with the gravity of the situation. There are no do-overs. You don't get to go back and do it over. And so I hope that as a result of our time together these four weeks, I hope that you'll grasp some of these godly principles. How do I do this right? And if you have children, take some of them, apply them now. If you've got grandchildren, apply them now. And if you don't have children yet, perhaps the day will come. Most likely, the day will come. Log these away, for you'll need them. Our goal is to raise up our children to the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And if I were to take everything that I find in the Scriptures about raising children, all of the different commands and I were to boil them down, I think I can boil them down to two. We need to teach our children to know God and to obey God. You need to teach our children to know God 
and to obey God. And these four weeks, I'm trying to follow that as the way that we outline this. And so two weeks in knowing God and two weeks in obeying God. And last week we saw uh, we need to teach our children to know God by understanding grace. We need to understand grace ourselves as parents, but then we need to model it and, sh- and show it, explain it, teach it. We need our children also to understand grace. And this week, I hope to help us by teach our children to know God by understanding our purpose. Understanding our purpose. You realize that God created us as human beings for a purpose. If you've ever heard someone ask, what is the meaning of life? This is your purpose. God created you for a reason. And understanding your purpose will help you in knowing how to teach your children. You see, a part of teaching our children to know God is knowing the characteristics of God. What is God like? We teach our children these things on purpose. You see, it was not some cosmic mistake that we became humans. It was not some happy little accident that suddenly monkeys became human beings and then the human beings decided, oh, we like this, so we'll not go back to being monkeys. It was not some accident that happened. God created us for a purpose and He created us on purpose. And God's given us a purpose and in understanding our purpose and the reason that we exist, in understanding that we can know God. Knowing Him will help our children. And so I want, with that thought in mind, I want us to read verses 4 down to verse 7 again. This was our Scripture reading. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day, they shall be in your heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou risest up, when thou sittest down. God chose for your teaching to be in this method. As you go throughout your day, as you live your day-to-day life, take these spiritual principles and make them a part of your life. Please, please do not allow your children to hear you make the statement, am something blue spirit, that's all body side, all same, all same. There's no space for that in the life of a believer. Your beliefs shape your actions. And so if you believe it on Sunday, don't say, I'm something God on Sunday, and Monday equals Saturday is body side. No, the body side comes out from the Spirit. And so if I believe it, and I understand it, and I wholly embrace it, well then my life will flow out from it. And so if I believe that there are rights and there are wrongs, and if I believe that God is doing a work in my life, then I'm going to allow that to come out in my life. Your actions are a result of your beliefs. And so if you investigate your life and you say, wait a second, my life is not what I want it to be, then you need to take a step back and see what your beliefs are. Do I really honestly believe that God in His Word has given us the way to live? And if I don't believe that, then I need to shake up the things that are at my core and see what do I really believe? And get those beliefs settled. And when I've got those beliefs settled from out 
from that, then I can go to my rising up and my sitting down and walking in the way. I can teach these things to my children. Oh, I hope that you'll take these words of Scripture and make it a part of your every day. He said it in verse 7, Thou shalt teach them diligently unto your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk in your way or in today's society. When you get in the car and you drive somewhere, don't just depend on the music to provide the conversation or to help you evade the conversation. Instead, speak with your children Teach them. And I hope that you're not thinking, well, what am I going to talk to my kids about? Remember what we said last week. God has provided you with an infinite number of things that you can speak to your children about. Look at the rainbow. Look at the sunset. Look at the way that God causes these trees to grow the way that they grow. And son, look at the way that when we sin, God provided a Savior. Speak of these things with your children. There's an infinite number of things that you can speak with them. And so then as we talk about our purpose, I might say, what is our purpose? The scripture is very clear about this, and we can take it right back to the creation story in the Garden of Eden as God created man. This is Genesis 1 and verse 27. So God created man in His image. In the image of God created He Him, male and female created He them. So don't think God created man in God's image and then woman got to become the photocopy. That's not how it works. It was God created man in His image, and in case you just wanted to say it was only men that got created in His image, it was men and women. He clarified it in verse 27. So you and I, all together, all of us, are created in the image of God. Another way that we can say that is we are image bearers. If you're a Christian, I would hope that that phrase would begin to ring within your mind. Allow that phrase to become a part of your vocabulary. I am an image bearer of God. You might wonder, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an image bearer? I think that I, probably an example would be of help. This week, I went to Google. How many of you go to Google on a regular basis? I go to Google all the time. I, if I don't know the answer, I go to Google. Maybe you've got a different one you want to go to, but I go to Google. And I typed in, just for the fun of it, I typed in the question, how big is a nuclear reactor? Because in my mind, I was like, I need to know how big is a nuclear reactor. I actually wrote down the response it gave me. The answer came back. This is what it said. I quote from Google. About 425 reactors globally, ranging in size from 30 to 1,660 megawatts, and they are water-cooled. That did not answer my question, Google. My question was, how big are they? And it said, there's 425 of them, some of them are water-cooled, and they're in range in these megawatts. What does that mean to me? I don't know. But Google does have another option. When you type into the search bar, underneath it, it has another option, and one of those options is images. And when I clicked on images, instantly I got the answer to my question. Because in the images, there were pictures of nuclear reactors from all around the world. And instantly I got to see, oh, and here's a nuclear reactor. I see a picture, probably the third or fourth one in. There's a picture of a nuclear reactor and there's people standing in there. And you can see, okay, the people are this big and the, machine, the, the, the reactor's that big. Okay, now I have an idea of how big it is. Why? Because I was able to see the image. Now, you and I, 
would not be so foolish as to say that picture on the screen of my laptop is a nuclear reactor. It's not. It's just a picture, right? We're not producing electricity from my laptop. It's not happening. It's just an image. Now, take that same explanation, bring it to our lives. You're not God. I'm not God. But we are images of Him. He should be reflecting His glory through us. He created us in His image so that when we look at one another, we should be reflecting this is God-like character. That's what he's looking for. And by the way, Adam and Eve created without sin in the garden, perfectly reflecting the image of God. You and I have got a bit of tarnish on our image. We're kind of blocking out the true character of God because we have sin in our lives. And yet, he he still calls us to reflect his character. He's looking for us to be image bearers. Now, first, uh, the book of Colossians, chapter 1 and verse 16, adds some de- depth to this. Here's Colossians 1:16. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, pay attention to this last phrase, and for him. You see, he created you, Friend, he created you and he created me to be his image bearer. 8.1 billion of us on the planet right now. He created us to be a reflection of his glory. He created us for himself. You see, your purpose in life extends much greater than just you. Further, here's 1 Corinthians 10, and how do we act? This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. He says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, Do all to the glory of God. That helps us to summarize the idea. So what is it that is my purpose in life? What is your purpose in life? My purpose in life is to bring glory to God. I have one single purpose in all of my life is I need to bring glory to God. And your purpose as a parent is to teach your children to bring glory to God. I will better parent my children if I teach them to know God and I understand my purpose in bringing them to glorify God. Our number one purpose as parents is to teach our children to glorify God. Friend, I hope that of all the rest that we say today, you can grasp this thought. Teach your children to bring glory to God. Unfortunately, we're fallen sinful humans. And instead of teaching our children to glorify God, we quite often hope that they will glorify us. Sadly, we step into the place of God in the lives of our children, and we expect that they will glorify us. I wonder if you're trying this morning, or if you have been trying to bring glory to yourself, I want to spend the rest of our time together looking at this thought. It's a subtle slide that's even with good intention, sometimes we can slide into this. Then we suddenly find ourselves, wait a second, I've been doing parenting this way when I should have been doing it that way. I should have been pointing them to the glory of God. I should have been encouraging them to glorify God, but instead I've 
the way I've acted and the things I've said, I've started to bring some of that glory to myself. And I'm undermining the way that God has created us. So how do I know? That's our question. How do I know if I'm finding my purpose in the wrong place? How do I know? And the first one I'll give you three today. The first one that I find is this. I have too much concern about success and reputation. Too much concern about success and reputation. If you've got that piece of paper, you can just leave it there in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. I'd love for you to come over to 1 Samuel, chapter 1, and we'll get an example of a priest, we might say, modern day, a pastor who placed his concerns and success and perhaps even his own reputation. It's easy for us to be wrapped up in our own personal success, or I want to do well, or I need to make more money, or I need to... Here's the one that we often say, especially when regards to our children, I want to give my child a better life than I had. And we tie good parenting to success when God doesn't put it there. Here you are in 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is the story most often that you would read the story because the main theme that flows through these first few chapters is the story of Samuel. And you might remember his mother, Hannah, unable to have a child, and she goes and prays. And the priest that's there, his name is Eli, and I want to focus in on Eli for a few minutes, him and his sons. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 3. He's speaking of Elkanah. This is Samuel's father, the man that would be Samuel's father. Here's verse 3. This man went up, up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Now pay attention to this here. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And so the story develops, and you kind of follow through the rest of chapter 1. You follow as Hannah is blessed with a child, that child's name Samuel. And then she gives Samuel back to the Lord. Now come to chapter 2 and verse 12, and you'll find out that Eli's sons uh, are not what you expect them to be. Uh, keep in mind that in that time, God had called the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother, to be the high priest. So this is more than just dad was a priest. It's we have an entire chronology that for generations we've been priests. So here's Eli filling the position of the high priest and then his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are now supposed to keep that lineage going. It's their job to do it, but we're going to find out that as priests, they were wicked men. Here's chapter 2 and verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, Don't think that Belial is like their grandfather. (laughs) The word Belial means that they are worthless, full of destruction. Many times the scripture uses that phrase, sons of Belial, to mean not just they are the children of, but instead they live this way. They live in a life of wickedness. And they knew not the Lord. It's sad when a child does not know the Lord. It's a tragedy when a pastor's children don't know the Lord continues on in verse 13. The priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. 
All that the flesh hook brought out, up the priest took for himself, so they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came together. That's a violation of what God had told them to do. I won't take the time to develop this, but back in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 3, God had commanded that the priests were to live off of the sacrifices, but it was to be the shoulder, the two cheeks, and the stomach that were to be given to the priests. So whether that's a cow or it's a sheep, they're supposed to receive the shoulder, the two cheeks, and the stomach goes to the priests for them to live off of. And yet, these two guys in their wickedness would see the sacrifice of a sheep come in, and they just said, put it in the pot. As the pot boiled, they would put in a hook that has three prongs, as the verse says, and they would put the hook in, and they take out. Whatever comes out is ours. And I can imagine they probably got really good at picking which piece they wanted. This was a violation. Then in verse 15, it continues on with this violation that they were involved in. Also, before they burnt the fat, the priest's servants came and said to the men that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, Let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer him, Nay, but thou shalt, not, thou shalt give it me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore the sin of the Lord was very great before the Lord, for the men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Again, the Levitical sacrifices, there's a phrase that says exactly the fat belongs to the Lord. They were to take the fat, burn that before God, before the priests were to take any portion. And yet these two priests, the sons of Eli, were forcibly taking what they wanted. Somebody would bring their offering and say, I've brought my sacrifice to the Lord. And Hophni and Phinehas would say, we want our choice cuts off of it. And, and these two, the, 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 the poor father that brought his sacrifice, think with me, for when you brought a sacrifice in those days, it was to be blameless, it was to be without spot. So in other words, the family would have been looking after that lamb in a special way, separate it from the rest of the herd. Sometimes even, the book of Exodus chapter 12 said, sometimes bring it into your house. And so can you imagine as a family takes the sacrifice, here's our lamb that we're going to give to God, and as they come to the tabernacle to turn this over to God, they see that the priests are mutilating it? The priests are taking parts of it for themselves in a way that defiles the sacrifice? And if they spoke up about it, these priests would abuse them. Terrible. I can't help but wonder what's going on here. Eli, what have you been doing? I can't imagine turning his back, turning a blind eye. Come down to verse 22. The wickedness continued. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto Israel how they lay with women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. This is abuse at another level. Verse 23, And he said unto them, Why do you do such things? I hear of the evil dealings by all my people. Nay, my sons, it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Nevertheless, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. God has now set his eye against these two boys. I submit to you this morning that Eli should have stepped a little bit further than saying, hey guys, you're doing wrong. Eli's still the high priest. 
He's still in a position here where he has the authority, and yet he allowed this to continue. I can't imagine being somebody at that day wanting to be right with God and bringing my sacrifice only to watch something like this happen. Can't help but wonder how much of Eli's reputation and his success did he care about here? God sent someone to warn him about this. This is in chapter 2 and verse 27. There came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when you were in Egypt and Pharaoh's house? That was Aaron. Didn't I show myself to him? Did I choose him? Verse 28, Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? Wherefore kick you at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I've commanded in my habitation, Now watch this phrase, and honorest thy sons above me to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. These two sons have taken the goodness of God and abused it. They've made it about themselves. Verse 28, make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all my offerings. They're getting fat on the goodness of God. Me, 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 give me, I want. And friend, it's not just priests' sons that did this. All throughout history, all of our sons live this way. Give me, give me, give me, I want, I want. And God puts the responsibility on fathers to call this into check. Eli let it go. And God did not punish it immediately. I think this is worth us noting. God did not punish it immediately. God allowed them. God, in His goodness, gave them space to repent. And the words of Romans chapter 1 echo in my mind. The goodness of God draws us to repentance. Friend, please hear me this morning. If you know that you've sinned and you've lived in sin and God has not punished you, that's the goodness of God in your life. Don't think, I do good things, God blesses me. I do bad things, God curses me. No, sometimes God allows you to stay in your sin for a while. One, so that you can see the results of what happens when you run from Him. You'll find emptiness in sin. It will never fulfill you. That's His goodness to allow that to happen. And then He holds back. Romans 1 says that He holds back His wrath. This is a display of His goodness in your life as He holds back His wrath Without unleashing it, you should be fearful as you realize, like a dam, He has held back the waters of the wrath of his, his, the wrath over your sin. And one day, He will unleash it. Oh, let us be bowing humbly before Him in repentance, for the goodness of God draws us to repentance. Hophni and Phinehas despised the goodness of God. We'll take what we want. And Eli has honored his sons above God. Dads, if you allow sin to continue in the lives of your children, moms, if you allow sin to continue in the lives of your children, do you realize that you're honoring your child more than you're honoring God? I said last week we need to understand grace, but grace needs its roots in the law. The law tells us this is right, this is wrong. 
without the law, grace is just meaningless. Just do what you want, kids. That's not grace, it's laziness. But having the law lets us to see this is where you failed. And son, you need to know you failed. And that brings us to the grace of God. As you repent, God forgives. And oh, how we need to have a look at our sinfulness and understand that our sinfulness separates us from a holy God. Look down to verse 34. This shall be a sign unto thee, Eli. It shall come upon thy two sons, on Hophni and Phinehas, and one day they shall die, both of them. It doesn't happen the rest of that chapter. It doesn't happen in the next chapter. And you get through the majority of the third chapter, and it happens then. Both sons die. Eli, as he hears the news that his two sons have just passed away, he himself faints from the news, falls off of his chair, breaks his neck. He dies that day as well. In the same evening, one of the boy's wife gives birth to his son. She dies in childbirth, and shortly before she dies, she says, the boy's name will be Ichabod. The glory has departed. Do you realize the swing that that family went from? We are called to give glory to God, to now the glory has departed. Oh friend, we have a purpose. Our purpose is to bring glory to God, and we need to be teaching our children this purpose. I hear the Apostle Paul's words being echoed in this. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6. Some parents would say, oh, I need to be concerned with success and reputation. And yet, 1 Timothy chapter 6 gives a caution. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Do you want to know what great gain is for your life? Godliness with contentment. I want to take on the character of God. I'm going to be content in what He has given me. I'm going to be content in being like Him. That's great gain. That's real great gain. And before I go further, you realize that the pursuit of success always leaves us in emptiness. For it does not matter how far and how successful you get, there's always someone who has been more successful. And when you find there's someone who has more success than you, you want to grasp for that. And oh, how contentment can be found in godliness. I'm going to have great gain here. We brought nothing into the world, he says in verse 7, and it's certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. And he continues on this statement with verse 9, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. You know what a snare is? It's a trap. A snare is a trap that you didn't see coming. If you've ever trapped Abus in the bush, you know, you don't put a giant trap there with a sign that says, look out. You hide it. Good through. Tie it. Put it where the couple's coming. He'll never see this. And along the branch he comes, and he never realizes that he got caught up into it until it's too late. Warn them, Paul says, warn them. 
If you want to be rich, what's going to happen? Warn them, those that would be rich. You want to be rich, what's going to happen? You're going to fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts that drown men in destruction and perdition. For, and this is the famous verse that all of us know, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they erred from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The word snare, pierced, I hope those words echo in our minds this morning for the pursuit of success and the pursuit of popularity and reputation will draw you into places that you never thought that you would go. I said at at the beginning, oh, maybe you weren't there, but it's such a slippery slide. You find yourself there one day. Your pursuit of success will draw the attention of your children away from the glory of God. And it'll leave you with a giant hole. I think of King David after Eli's story about 80 years passed, and David was then the king of Israel. David sitting upon his throne, having brought peace to his people. He has a son by the name of Amnon. Amnon is his oldest son, and Amnon is in next in line to become king. In fact, if you know Israel's history, you know that Solomon ends up becoming king. And if it were not for what I'm, the event that I'm about to share with you, Amnon would have been the next king. There came a day when Amnon looked upon his sister Tamar and found her to be exceedingly beautiful, and he thought, I need to have her. And so he began to talk with his friends about different ways that he could come up with, and then he actually ended up sending word to his own father, sent word to David, and said, Dad, could... I'm not feeling well. He set it up. It was a great scheme that he put together. Dad, I'm not feeling well. Could you send Tamar down to cook some food for me? Listen to the words here of 2 Samuel 13 and verse 7. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go now to thy brother Amnon's house and dress him meat. And if you know what's to come, now I think perhaps you can allow to settle into your mind how much guilt David carried. David's the one that said, Tamar, go to the house. I'll spare you the details, but Tamar went to the house to cook food with an innocent approach. Amnar did unspeakable things to his sister. They had a third-born brother by the name of Absalom. Absalom watched to see what would dad do. I'll share with you what scripture says that dad did. This is the same chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 13. Here's verse 21, and this is all that we know about what David did. When King David heard of all these things, he was very wroth. In other words, according to Scripture, the only thing David did was get angry. He got angry at his son Amnon, and he did nothing else about it. And Absalom watched for two years. The Scriptures say Absalom watched, and he stood by to see what would happen. And one day, Absalom was just so enraged, the fact that nothing has happened about his brother doing this to his sister and Absalom raised up a small army and had his big brother killed murdered him five years later Absalom raised up a civil war against his own dad the nation went to battle split right down the middle Absalom against David directly tied to the fact that dad I can only imagine maybe David Why would he not address this? The only thing I can come up with 
is he's hoping, let's just sweep this issue under the rug. We'll act like it never happened. We'll just go on about our way. We want the kingdom to continue on as it is, and there are problems underneath that rug. A pursuit of success and reputation will lead you to an emptiness in your parenting. Friend, allow that to be a cautionary tale. What good does it do if I become king of the world and my children embrace wickedness? You'll not find your purpose in success and reputation. Second, too much emphasis on doing rather than being. Too much emphasis on doing rather than being. As parents, we want our children to do right. I want you to follow me for just a minute here. This is a bit of a concept that I want to develop, and and, and perhaps it can be of help to you. I don't know if you're like me. When my children were growing up, they loved to argue. They would fight between the two of them, and there were days when I just had had enough. And I just want to tell them, that's enough. Stop fighting. Stop arguing. I don't want to hear it anymore. And in that moment, I'll tell you what I'm doing is I'm addressing the behavior. I'm telling them to stop doing. Our family has a funny story that we often repeat to one another. I don't have clear memories of it, but my wife and girls do have much better memories of it. We were in Brisbane. There was an event, another family there. Our family was not arguing, thank you, thankfully, at that moment. Uh, but the other family, they had two boys, and the two boys were having at it. They were just telling each other what for, and so our family was enjoying listening in. <clears throat> the event, someone was doing something with fire. And the one boy said to the other one, he said, when I grow up, I'm going to do that. The other boy, he said, do that? I don't think so. Because you, you'll be a window washer maybe, but not that. (laughs) Kids have such an innate, built-in way that they can just tear each other down, right? And we as parents want to tell our kids Just stop doing wrong. Start doing right. And what we try to do is we try to shape their behavior. We want to change. What we're trying to do is we're trying to change the doing. So I say here, we're wanting to help our children with their purpose. We want them to understand their purpose in life. Their purpose is tied to their being. And I'll just say this before I go further in explanation. An easy way for you to remember, should I be helping them with their being or with their doing? An easy way to remember this is God has made every single one of us to be a human being, not a human doing. He's not called you to be a human doing. You're a human being, all right? You're, you're called to be. So what are you called to be? Well, I'm called to be a child of God. I'm called to be in His image. I'm called to do His image. I'm called to be His image. And if I can be, then from my being will flow out my doing. Many times we, we addressed this when we were in the book of Romans. If you can understand as a Christian that I am in Christ, that changes the way I think about how I act. But if all I'm ever trying to do is address the different actions, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to not do this, I need to not do this, you'll constantly be caught up in a list where you're, oops, I missed this one, and oops, I missed that one. Allow it instead to come out from your being. I am in Christ, and I am a new creature. I am a child of God. I am a recipient of His grace. And because of these things, all of the actions of my life will flow out. 
when I see those actions that I don't want in my life, I have to step back and go, am I being? You realize that in the garden, Satan, he took this very concept and flipped it on its head, and that's where we find problems for Eve. The serpent came to Eve and he said, do, and you will have, and then you can be. That's what the serpent said. Do, and you can have, and then you'll be. Do what? Do eat the fruit. And you can have wisdom like God. And you will be like God. And yet the gospel tells us the exact opposite. The gospel says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. You start with the be, and then you have peace with God, and because of that you have actions that flow out that are completely opposite. Oh, so let us focus on being. Focus on being in Christ for yourself and for your children. Focus on the B level of life. And that should be a constant conversation. Son, you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus. You are now a new creature. The actions that I'm seeing are not a display of a new creature. Son, I want you to think about what it is that you're doing because what you're doing is not a reflection of who you say you are. Be speaking of these things when you're Rising up when you're sitting down, when you're walking in the way. Third, too much desire for control. You know that you can't maintain control over everything, right? And yet all of us want to, especially when it comes to our children. I have this recurring nightmare. I spoke of it this week to my wife. I have this recurring nightmare that I wake up, or in my dream, I, I always have this thing where I find out that the truck is driving, my truck is driving, but for some reason I'm not in the driver's seat. This is this nightmare. I'm in the back seat and I look and the back is filled with kids from Papa, <laughs> but I'm not in the driver's seat and nobody's in the driver's seat. Maybe I need some therapy because I'm always trying to maintain control. I don't know. <laughs> But all of us want to maintain control of our lives and of the people that are around us. We want to have control. And yet, seeking too much control in our lives will draw us away from the purpose for which we were created. We were created to glorify God, not to control everything that happens in our home. And our children need to learn this as well. There are things that are in their lives that are beyond their control. And if they can understand that they can rest in the Savior who has allowed these things to come into their life, then their entire worldview will be changed. There's some common tools that are used for control. And I wonder if maybe these are some things that you have done in your home and in your parenting. One, threats. I wonder if you've ever said anything like this. If I see you do that one more time, I'll hit you so far you'll land in tomorrow. I wonder if you've ever said anything like that. Threats, or something like, try me, just try me, come on, try me, I'll show you. Or, here's one that's really common, you may not realize it's a threat, I'm going to count to three, I'm going to count to three, you don't want to know what happens when I get to three. Can I just pause there for just a moment? If you're counting with your children to teach them obedience, all you're doing is you're teaching them that they can be disobedient until you get to the end of the count. That's kind of a poor way to teach. This is what I said, you need to be obedient. When you're not obedient, there's no grace, laziness as we wait for some future date. 
you were disobedient. We need to address that. But this threat version, I'm going to give a threat, and I'm going to, I'll show you, threats don't don't help. They only grasp for control. And friend, it's a short-term trick. I say it's short-term because it will only last for so long. The day will come when Junior's bigger than you, and threats don't work anymore. They'll listen for a little while. They'll be afraid for a little while. And you get to maintain control with violence and with threats. But the day that he gets to be bigger than you, you've lost that ability to control. He's not honoring at all. If at five years old you're having to threaten him to obey, at 15 and he's bigger than you, your threats mean nothing to him. And his motivation all through it is fear. You don't want to have your children fearing you. We have a brother that's here in the church, and I've asked his permission to use this illustration. I knew it from his own testimony. He shared with me how when he was small, his dad would belt his mom in terrible ways. And there were times when his dad would belt him as well. And somewhere around the time he was about 12 years old, he made a promise to himself. And his promise was, when I get big enough, I'm going to kill my dad. Oh, dad might have had control in the house while Junior was 12 years old. But dad had no idea the path that things were headed to. I'm happy to report this morning that the Lord got a hold of that young man's heart before he ever took action on what he had planned on doing. That young man had the privilege of leading his dad to the Lord Jesus when he grew up. Guys, motivation and control by fear and threats... It's temporary, and you'll end up losing control. Another tool that parents often use is rewards. Maybe you've said something like this. If you'll be good until we get home, I'll buy you an ice cream. Have you ever done that? It's rewards. I'm going to get you to do what I want you to do because I'm going to give you a reward to do it. I'm going to let you have something. Or if you'll be quiet while I'm on the phone, then we'll go out together and we'll play at the park or we'll go down to the beach. If you do this, I'll do that. It's very much like the threat version. The threat version, if you do this, I'll do that. And this is the reward one. It's similar. If you do this, I'll do that. We don't base our parenting upon their actions. We tell them this is what is supposed to be done, and they obey, and if they don't obey, there is the law, and there is punishment, and with punishment comes grace, and comes the need for us to talk about the Savior and the character of God in their life. But trying to grasp for control with these different tools is going to leave us with problems. Because doing nice things for Junior should not be tied to his obedience. Oh, do nice things for Junior. Do nice things for your kids, but don't tie it to their obedience. Why? Because if you teach your child that he only needs to do right when he's going to receive something for it, the day will come when he will decide that whatever it is you have to offer isn't enough. Follow this line of thinking. When he's two, you give him, give him a lolly, and he, he'll be good. And when he's five, the lolly's not enough anymore. It needs to be an ice cream. And when, it's, when he's seven, the ice cream's not enough. It needs to be double dip. And when he's 10, it's no longer gala ice cream. It needs to be a better brand. 
And when he's 12, it needs to be a PlayStation. And when he's 15, it needs to be a touchscreen iPhone. And when he's 17, it doesn't matter. You can't give him anything. And so what will he do? He has learned all of his life that pleasure is the reason that you do what you want to do. So what your motivation all along has been is his selfishness. When he was two, he got a lolly. He wanted a lolly, so you gave him a lolly, and he did what he wanted. He knew my behavior is tied directly to my reward. And then now as he comes to 17, and when he starts seeing things like homebrew and drugs on the street, it doesn't matter what mom and dad have to say because his pleasure is directly tied to what he wants. Mom and dad, let's not try to control our children with threats or with rewards. We end up in the same place. One day, he might like his sin more than he likes obedience. Third one, guilt. This one is very common. I hear it often. Maybe you've said things like this. I know that I have. Something like, how could you do this when I've worked so hard to give you these opportunities? Or this one. Our family is not like this. How are you even my child? We're throwing guilt on the child. I don't even know whose kid you are. You disgust me. These are guilt. We're trying to parent with guilt and hold control over them. And what you've done in this moment is you've made that sin about you instead of making that sin about God. Remember, the sin that the child does, just like the sin that you do, is a sin against God. Every sin that we do is primarily against God. But when you correct with guilt and you control with guilt, you're making their sin about you instead of making it about God. See, God has done a work in their life and should be doing a work in their life, and this is a part of their sanctification. And if you make that guilt about you and how they've disappointed you, you make them to be, the motivation would be that they would be a man-pleaser. They'll spend their life looking for ways to keep people happy instead of looking for ways to be right with God. And so there is a better way. Instead of trying to grasp for control, there is a better way. And we mentioned it last week. You can expect mistakes. Just expect that they're going to come. And know that those mistakes that they make are a part of their sanctification. You realize that when Junior does something wrong, it's a part of his sanctification, and God has given your child the gift of parents. God has put it in your hands to be the one on his behalf to point out, Junior, you did wrong. As a part of his sanctification, a part of him being more and more like Christ, conformed to the image of God's Son, God has put you there in that position to help them to realize this is right and that is wrong. And because we are sons of God, this is the way that we act. This is the way that we're supposed to be. And the actions that you are doing do not reflect the actions of a son of God. And by the way, in those moments when they do something wrong, and it makes you to be exceedingly angry, guess what? Not only is it a moment of their sanctification, it's a moment of your sanctification. As God's exposing parts of your heart that need some work. You go, God, why did I have kids like this? And God goes, this was for you to be conformed to the image of my son. And God's given this as a gift to us. If you would come back with me to the book of Deuteronomy and we'll close there. And God has put this child into your life so that you can help this child to understand the purpose of his life.
Namely, he's the image bearer of a great creator. God put him on this planet at this time under your care, and you can do it well. I'll conclude by looking again at verses 6 and 7. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 6. And these words, which I command thee this day, shall be in thine heart. I shall teach them diligently. Do you hear those words? Teach them diligently. Take the time with intention to speak of God with your children. Teach them diligently unto thy children. Talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Make it regular conversation. Son, daughter, God created us to give Him glory. We're bearing His image, and everything that we do should be a reflection of God. When we fall, it's not about making mom and dad look bad. It's about being a poor reflection of God's image, son. And son, God sent the Lord Jesus to take our place on the cross. And I would hope that you have this kind of conversation with your children regularly. Son, you sin just like dad sins. And God has let us see when we sin so that we know that we're not perfect and we're not sinless. You see, if we were perfect and sinless, God would have never had to send Jesus. Jesus would have never had to go to the cross. But instead, God sent Jesus, and Jesus went to the cross so that on the cross, He could take the wrath of God that was supposed to be on our sin. He took it upon Himself instead. And Jesus, in the space of three hours, hung upon the cross of Calvary, and He absorbed all the wrath of God upon Himself so that you and I don't have to take this sin. We don't have to have the punishment of God upon us. Instead, Jesus took it. And there Jesus took our sin upon Himself. And He took all of God's wrath. And He makes this statement. If we will just believe in Jesus, He'll make us right with God. You know John 3.16. For whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish. Perish from what? Perish from the wrath of God. But should have everlasting life. So moms and dads, let us teach our children to know God by understanding our purpose. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity for us to spend some time in your word this morning to see what it means to be godly parents. I pray this morning that you would help us as we steer our children to understand why am I even here? that we can be a reflection of the character of God so that others will see the image of God in us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to point our children at the grace of the Lord Jesus. If you're here this morning and you've never put your trust in the Lord Jesus, I'd love to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. We'll close in just a moment, but perhaps you're here and you say, Pastor, I've never put my trust in Jesus, and I'd like to talk to somebody about that. I'd like to put my trust in Jesus today. Would you just raise your hand where you're at? I'll have somebody in leadership can come and speak with you. Is there anybody like that? You just raise your hand and say, Pastor, I'd love to talk to somebody about putting my trust in Jesus. Is there one like that?
to get Leone? Leone? Is there another? You can just raise your hand. I want to talk to somebody about putting my trust in Jesus. Joe, would you like to take it? Is there another? So I'd like to put my trust in the Lord Jesus this morning. I don't want to rush out of here. Is there another? You say, I'd like to put my trust in Christ. pray again in just a moment. I just want to give one more chance in case you would like to speak with somebody. Is there another? Thank you, Jerry. And perhaps you're shy to put your hand up in the public. I might encourage you when we finish, come and see one of us in the pastoral staff. We'd love to talk to you. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you've bestowed upon our lives. Thank you that you sent Jesus to the cross to take our sin. I pray that we would boldly reflect the image of God in our lives. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.